to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Travis Mayfield in for Dave Ross, along with Tom Hutler in for Colleen, and Ted Beener is here for Sully. The world waits right now to see what will happen next in Israel and Gaza as the war there is on the brink of a deadly new phase. We turn now to Face the Nation moderator and CBS's chief foreign affairs correspondent, Margaret Brennan. Margaret, Israel is warning a million plus residents of northern Gaza to evacuate south. Now, as thousands of Israeli military members amass for a possible ground war, where does the situation stand at this hour? At this hour, the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, is in Israel uh, pledging to provide support to um, the U.S. ally, uh, also saying that this is going to be bloody. Um, Also, saying that they expect Israel to uphold uh, the highest standards when conducting what will be um, brutal urban warfare when this ground incursion of Gaza happens. And it is expected to happen soon. Uh, As you mentioned, there is this 24-hour warning being given by Israeli forces to residents of Gaza. It's just a 25-mile strip, one of the most densely populated in the world, and very few outlets, if any, at this moment. There's a diplomatic push with Secretary of State Antony Blinken in Qatar today, earlier uh, in Jordan and in Israel, and going throughout the region to marshal forces to bring to bear diplomatic pressure to open up, to allow some of those civilians out of the Gaza Strip, if Israel will allow for it, uh, also to allow in medicines to be provided to hospitals in Gaza, uh, Qatar, Jordan, Egypt, working on that. Another diplomatic push by the United States is to have a hostage release by Hamas. And so countries like Qatar, uh, where they do have a relationship with Hamas, they are being leaned on by the United States uh, to deliver. Here, So there's a lot of work happening behind the scenes in advance of what is expected to be a pretty brutal military invasion. It sounds like some of the military targets here are the tunnels that Hamas uses underneath civilian settlements in Gaza where they hide and they store things and weapons and they move about. That seems to be what Israel is targeting. But the question is, you said it, densely populated, a million plus civilians here. With the the bombing that's been happening over the last number of days, it sounds like roads are just a mess. I mean, there's this blockade, so gasoline isn't getting in for cars. How are these residents going to actually move south in Gaza? Great question. Uh, and the United Nations is begging publicly, saying that it is impossible to move that number of people, that there are far too many women and children among the civilians that they have. The, the phrase used uh, by the head of, of the UN um, efforts there in Gaza was that this is time for humanity to prevail, asking for more time, asking for some uh, help here to uh, allow for those civilians to move. Remember, those civilians are already in an area where gas, electricity, and water have been cut off. And according to the UN, of the 2 million residents of Gaza, half of them are children. I also am wondering about Americans in the region. The U.S. State Department is now trying to to get these emergency flights out of that country. I was reading there may be some, some ships that are taking Americans out. Can you explain that process right now? Yes. Uh, well, there are roughly 20,000 uh, Americans who, and, and when I say Americans, I mean often dual nationals or Americans who were in Israel and are looking to get out, who have asked the embassy for help. There may be even more than that. There are also dual nationals uh, in Gaza trying to get out. And so the United States has uh, said they will effort today uh, for some of those evacuations and attempts to help leave 
to, to take place on charter flights. Um, in fact, one of my guests on Sunday, uh, the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, is is also leading an effort to get private planes there to, to bring people out. Um, that that's the push. Uh, but keep in mind, there are there are very strong ties between the United States and Israel and a lot of people with dual citizenship, including um, some of the hostages, as we understand it, who are being held by Hamas. And there was a big diplomatic effort there. So there, there are multiple fronts here where Americans um, are caught here in the crossfire in more ways than one. And Margaret, I want to switch gears while we have you and talk about what's happening in Congress, because these things are not unrelated. Um, The U.S. Congress has basically just been paralyzed at this moment because the House doesn't have leadership. The Republicans can't seem to come together and elect a new speaker. And if we need Mm -hmm. to provide continuing help for our Israeli allies, we need the House involved in that. Can you bring us up to speed? Steve Scalise had looked like he might be a potential speaker, but he dropped out last night. That's right. Uh, 218. That's a magic number you have to get to for uh, a winning vote. And none of the candidates thus far have been able to get there. Um, There isn't unity within the Republican caucus. There are different factions fighting here. Jim Jordan, who is more of a hard right member of the party, had put himself forward. Then he pulled out. Perhaps he throws his hat back in. As you just said, Steve Scalise, who was already in Republican leadership, was vying to move from majority leader to speaker and took himself out last night, unable to get to that number, that two. 18. So unclear what happens next. But as you laid out, we are are working against the clock here. November 17th is the date by which government funding runs out. So Congress controls the purse strings when it comes to the United States government. New spending has to be authorized by Congress. Congress is paralyzed because they can't figure out who will be the next leader. So Republicans can either find a consensus leader somehow someone else emerges, or they can reach across the aisle and ask Democrats to help give them the votes to get to that 218 number. Right now, they're stuck. And when it comes to Israel, there's already a very robust military and intelligence relationship between the United States and Israel. They are one of the top, if not the top, recipients of U.S. foreign aid, period. So they're not starting from zero. They do have resources, and the Biden administration says they can help in the immediate term. You have a guest this weekend who I think can speak to some of the and I'm going to call it dysfunction that is happening in Congress, specifically in the House. And that's the former Republican representative from Wyoming, Liz Cheney. What are you going to ask her? That's right. Uh, She's outside Congress, used to be in Republican leadership, definitely want to get her to weigh in on this race and who could emerge as a consensus candidate. She has been very clear that she thinks the candidates thus far are very flawed. Uh, We also want to talk to her just about the level of dysfunction on the global stage Um, at a time when there is global instability. In Europe, with this Russian invasion, in the Middle East, with this war that has just broken out within the past week and the terror threat that goes with it, what is the role of American leadership and what does it mean to this instability when the very basic functioning of our institutions is paralyzed? Face the Nation moderator and CBS's chief foreign affairs correspondent, Margaret Brennan. Margaret, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thank you. In the nation's northwest corner, 
is Washington. An evergreen playground. Our resident historian Felix Bennell joining us Friday mornings as he does for his segment all over the map. A quick look at the stories behind the local places and the things. And this week, a reboot of Frasier moving the main character from Seattle to Boston. But what TV programs told the rest of the world about our dear and fair city before Kelsey Grammer ever sang that scrambled eggs song? You know, there have been stories this week about how the reboot of Frasier shows how much Seattle has moved away from its blue collar roots since the 1990s. I'm not sure if I buy all those theories, or maybe I'm just jealous of those stories because they were really in-depth and people spent a lot of thoughtful time on them. But Frasier moving to Boston is a great excuse to look at other TV programs before Frasier that use Seattle in some way to tell their stories and that influence Seattle's image in the outside world. I want to look at three categories of pre-Frasier shows. The first is uh, Seattle as an off-screen character in a show that otherwise has no relation to the city. Okay. Okay, you can take notes yeah, on this. This, this will be yeah. on the midterm. Please. For example, in the 1970s on The Bob Newhart Show, his wife Emily was from Seattle. Her parents still live there. They often talked about the oh, rain and the yeah. trees and stuff. It was, kind of, it was very subtle, yes. but it, it had an effect. Now, about 15 years earlier, the character of Ward Cleaver, the dad on Leave it to Beaver, he once visited Seattle, and he and June Cleaver talked about it. You know, you and Fred have a good time talking about fishing. Oh, sure. I'll have to listen all over again to how he caught that 17-pound muskie in Minnesota. And that will give you a chance to talk about the 26-pound salmon you caught in Seattle. That's about it. Sam, it's, again, it's very subtle, yeah. but it's like Seattle and salmon, uh-huh. of course, even 70 years ago. Um, now, the next category is Seattle as the setting for a TV show. It's happened a lot after Frasier, with Grey's Anatomy and iCarly, for example. But the most Seattle-intensive pre-Frasier show was Here Come the Brides. Premiered in 1968, on the very day I was born, by the way. It ran for two seasons. Time Magazine called Here Come the Brides a comedy series about a pack of sex-starved lumberjacks working in Seattle after the Civil War. That's all you got to know. Yeah, right. right. I'm in. (laughs) Here's Robert Brown as an Arthur Denny-like character named Jason Bolt trying to convince some lovely ladies to trek north from San Fran to Seattle. Never seen snow till you've seen it snow in Seattle. And the rain. Why, if you get wet in Seattle, spring rain. You won't want to take a bath for a month because you don't want to wash off how how clean you feel. <clears throat> I don't quite get that. I'm but not anyway. Sure the snow in Seattle yeah, is well, something to celebrate. Yeah, and look at this. The show is shot in a national forest in Southern California. Yeah, it it doesn't really look like Seattle, though. Anyway, spoiler alert. The last category is Seattle as a setting for a TV movie. You remember TV movies? Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is where my crackpot theory kind of comes in. I think far more than those 264 episodes of Frasier, the most influential TV program set in Seattle of all time is The Night Strangler. It aired in January 1973, starred Washington-born and raised Darren McGavin, the dad from Christmas Story, as Carl Kolshak, the tabloid newspaper reporter with a nose for the odd or otherwise spooky. And he uncovers a vampire-like figure living under, of all places... Pioneer Square. Here it was, the hidden city beneath Seattle's underground. I was descending to the world of yesterday, the world of the 19th century, of bustle pads and high crown hats and Queen Victoria, the private world of Dr. Richard Malcolm. Very scary, but shot, actually a lot of the exterior shot in Seattle oh, okay. in 1972, so it's like a yeah. time capsule. And that movie functioned as a pilot for the TV series called The Night Stalker, which aired for just a year. Yeah. And it's totally influential. The guys who created The X-Files, they were very much inspired by that. And I thought I saw this TV movie as a very young child, and I thought about it every day in the last 51 years, I guess. So. <laughs> it's really that's influenced okay. I'm exaggerating a little bit. Anyway, but that's the thing. It's like these discussions about Frasier, very airy yeah. diet, like, oh, Seattle's not as blue-collar as it yeah. was, and the characters are more like the Fra- 
I guess I kind of buy that, but really, it's like Seattle has always been this very diverse place where you can lots of people have lived here of different socioeconomic classes, and it's all been reflected in these great TV shows. So before Frasier, I know it's not directly Seattle, but I do think of like Twin Peaks in in North Bend. Exactly, yeah, it's I the think, Northwest exactly. kind of mystique, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Or um, my my parents' favorite Northern Exposure, which I yep. know was supposed to be in Alaska, but was like filmed in Roslyn. Filmed in Redmond, and yeah. the exteriors were the soundstage in Redmond. The exteriors were filmed in Roslyn. There's that sort of that bigger Northwest mystique, but yeah. I was thinking Seattle specifically because there's been so much sort of abuse of this whole Frasier metaphor in Boston <laughs> yeah, and stuff, and it's yeah. like, you know, eh, I don't know. Here, here, here come the brides. Didn't that feature uh, teen heartthrob and, and singer Bobby Sherman as Bobby well? Bobby Sherman and David sang, Soul. Yeah. And he sang the bluest guys you've ever seen. He sang seen a version of the theme song that yeah. Perry Cairo made more popular on TV. Yeah. yeah. Or on the radio, I mean. Yeah. So many connections. Have you watched this first episode that's all out there no, for Frasier? Yeah, I mean, it's the same. Yeah. That's kind no, of how no I feel. Interest. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, no interest. No Niles, no Seattle. What's the point? Exactly. Night Stalkers. Well, I'll watch a repeat of the Night Strangler and I've been Fine. Disturbed like you are for the rest of your lives. <laughs> <laughs> Felix Bennell, thank you very much. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Silla. There is a movement to make Halloween safe for kids with food allergies. It's called the Teal Pumpkin Project. And to explain it, here is Tiffany Leon. You're with a group called the Food Allergy Research Education Group. What is, uh, what's the purpose of the Teal Project, Tiffany? Thank you so much for having me. And you're, you're absolutely right. The Teal Pumpkin Project is a movement to raise awareness of food allergies and to create a safer, more inclusive Halloween for all trick-or-treaters. And how does it work? It's super simple. You place a teal pumpkin on your doorstep, which signals to your neighbor's neighborhood that in addition to candy you're offering in a separate bowl um, non-food trinkets or treats that are that are safe for kiddos with food allergies now i must admit i've never heard of a teal pumpkin where do you find teal pumpkins <laughs> you can find them in a lot of the major retail shops now um fair is partnering with cvs this year so uh you can Log on to our tealpumpkinproject.org. We have an interactive map where you can see the houses that are participating in your neighborhood and those CVS stores that make it super convenient for you. Oh, wow. So you can uh, you put your address on the website and so people can find you more easily? Yep, exactly. Sometimes uh, kiddos with food allergies like to plan their route to make sure that the houses that they're hitting are are appropriate for, for them. Um, but this way you can also showcase how you are participating, whether you're offering bubbles or stickers or last year I offered different bracelets or funky glasses. Um, so it really it really allows you to show your creativity. OK, so these these are alternative gifts as opposed to candy. Correct. Yes, correct. Now, are these teal pumpkins real pumpkins colored teal or plastic pumpkins or what are they? Uh, you can do either. If you have a little bit of extra time and want to show your artistic side, you can absolutely grab a real pumpkin from the patch and paint it teal. But the major retailers do offer either the teal pumpkin buckets or they have teal pumpkins um, that are plastic. Some of them, actually, the one that I have actually lights up. Oh, very sophisticated. So, <laughs> so Tiffany, how did you get involved in this? So I started at FAIR about three years ago. I'm a registered dietitian. I was working with a lot of kiddos with food allergies um, in schools, and I utilized so many of FAIR's resources, which you can log on to our website and see, foodallergy.org. And here I am three years later. <laughs> so, so, I mean, obviously, Halloween candy typically does have nuts in it especially if you get the uh, the packaged ones 
Um, so have we given up on the idea? Because I, I know um, having uh, grandkids who uh, who go to uh, co-ops and daycare and things like that, there's this policy on uh, allergy-free snacks, right? Uh, have we given up on the allergy-free snacks idea that you just got to go to inanimate, uh, non-food objects for Halloween? <laughs> So one in 10 Americans has a potentially life-threatening food allergy, and that includes one in 13 children, which is roughly two in every classroom. And part of the reason why you're seeing these, you know, food restrictive policies in schools or daycares, peanut-free, for example, um, and a lot of the popular Halloween candies do contain these items like peanuts you mentioned, other tree nuts, milk, eggs, soy, wheat or sesame. And some of those are the most common allergens in children and, you know, also adults, but you can be allergic to any food. Mm. And so it's almost impossible to find a food product that someone would not be allergic to, even if they're eliminating the top nine, which I think is fantastic. And then there, and there are many of those on the market. You could still have a kiddo that has an allergy to something else that might be in one of those products or, uh, made in the same facility as something like that. So this way it just takes the guesswork out of it. Um, and you can offer something that's non-food and they can enjoy even, you know, after Halloween. Hmm. So have you tried this before? And uh, what can you give me an idea of how many people or what percentage of the neighborhoods <laughs> participate? So really, I'm glad you asked. My mom started doing this when I first joined FAIR a few years ago. And she says that in her neighborhood, the non-food treats, the bucket goes faster than the candy that she <laughs> offers. So it is super popular, um, not only as an option for kids with food allergies, but there are other children that have medically restricted diets or that just may not benefit from having big bags of candy at the end of the day. Um, since its launch in 2014, the Till Pumpkin Project has really grown to become part of the fabric of Halloween across 50 states and even abroad. And you can see the 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 engagement on the Till Pumpkin map if you if you log on to our website. All right. So there you have it. There's an alternative for those of you who want to make it safer for kids with allergies, but who also don't want your own kids to fill up with candy. By the way, is, is it OK for somebody without allergies to take a sticker? Uh, you know, I don't ask the child if they have allergies or not. If they want the stickers, I try and have as many as as I can for for those kids. Yeah, that's probably less expensive than the candy when you come to think of it. Right. You never know. It might be. <laughs> Tiffany Leon is with the Food Allergy Research Education Group, and they are running the Teal Pumpkin Project. Thank you, Tiffany. Thank you so much for having me. Happy Halloween. Right now, we're going to head to Montlake, where ESPN's College Game Day has taken over the UW campus because of a huge game between the Huskies and the Ducks. Look, this is a big rivalry every year, but this year, it's especially big game. Both teams currently undefeated, ranked in the top 10. So Dave sat down with 710 Seattle Sports Brock Heward yesterday to get us all ready for the Saturday action. And we're going to talk about the big matchup between the University of Washington and the Oregon Ducks with uh, Brock Heward, NFL legend, uh, Husky legend, co-host of uh, Brock and Sock, Fox mm. broadcast legend, uh, which is impressive. But I'll have you know, I spent a uh, full year in the Cornell marching band. So I saw I was up close and personal for about seven football games. Well, I think the Husky marching band will be out in Red Square tomorrow morning. How about that? Huh? Yeah. Game days coming to town. The biggest game in college football is coming to town. And when game day, this is now the third time, Mr. Ross, that game day has made its appearance. They were hoping 
And I was kind of hoping to do something a little different. No problem with Red Square. It's a neat scene, and the sun comes up. They start in pitch darkness at 6 a.m., and the sun will eventually come up. They were trying to do it out on a barge, which I thought would have been so freaking yeah. cool because of the, you know, the sail gators and everything and a stadium that's right on the lake. There's only, I think, three in the country. The other two are on a river, the Hudson River for West Point and Tennessee and Knoxville is on a river. So they bring these big river boats, but nothing like Husky Stadium with all nothing the yachts. Like and they just, there were just too many moving pieces, a little too much liability, unfortunately, to make that happen. I thought the Pac-12 was uh, of no interest to uh, network television and such. Suddenly, everybody's interested in this game. What's <laughs> yes. the deal? Yeah, I don't even know if it's irony. It's it's just sad for me, Dave, to see all of it disintegrate and and yeah. for it to go out when it's been at its very best. The conference has never been better. The quarterback play, the coaching, the level of success, the rankings, all of it just backs it up. Any metric you want, it's really hard to argue with the standing that it finds itself in right now and unbelievably sad that it's going to be over come yeah. December. For those of us who may watch a college football game, I don't know, once a year, uh, set up this contest and what makes it so interesting. Yeah, this is the west of the Rocky Mountains. This one has the most pure sports hate. Yeah. The Apple Cup has history. <laughs> the Apple Cup has history and tradition, but quite honestly, like Damon, my older brother, said this, me too. Like when the Cougs are playing, like I'm rooting for them. They're yeah. not playing the Huskies. Like I, I, I root for them. The Ducks, you never, ever, 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 and ever, what's, ever. And what's ever the reason for, for that? Um, well, I think number one, because it's not your in state. Number two, and the biggest of which is they've won 21 of the last 28. I see. Because it's because of what they've done. So the 30s, us. 40s, 50s, 60s with Jim Owen, 70s, 80s, 90s with Don James. It was all Washington. It was a one-sided bloodbath. Yeah. They were the little farm school down in Eugene yeah. in the Willamette Valley. And then old Phil developed these, he, you know, he took a waffle iron and put these rubber soles with his track coach on yeah. these shoes and built this little swoosh. And all of a sudden they became a billion dollar yeah. entity. And, and bless his heart. And he wanted to pour it back into the school. And I got no vitriol for that. Like, that's no. awesome. No, and Oregon you're, you're, fans, you know. It's with, clear you're cool with that. Yeah, like, great. Go support them and go invest in them. And they have. And they've and then they've flipped the script 21 and 7 since 1994. Hmm. And you know what? The Husky fans can't stand that. So that's what you need in a rivalry. That's what you need. The Huskies and Cougs don't have that. The Huskies have largely, for decades and decades, won the majority of the games. Yeah. Not been that way here. And that team down south, because of the revenue, because of the exposure, because of the money, casts a net across the country, has recruited across the country, Dave, has brought great talent in, and has beaten your butt a lot well, more than you have. I think something's got to be done about that. That's why we elected Bruce Harrell this time around. Do something <laughs> Former about Former Husky that. linebacker, yeah. yes. No yeah, question. Exactly. So what, what are the Huskies' chances? Uh, pretty good. Yeah? Yeah, pretty good. They're actually favored. It's going to be, I think, a very close game. The Huskies won last year down in Eugene. Mm -hmm. They won a few years back with Jake Browning in Eugene. It's been a whole lot closer the last five or six years than the previous, you know, 15 that I that I mentioned where really Oregon dominated it. So it is going to be a terrific game. Neither side is going to run away from the other. It's going to come down to the fourth quarter. There's going to be 70,000 people there. All eyes of the country will be on it. The winner of this game, legitimately, is not only in the front row for the conference, it's a playoff contender, a national title contender. Never had this. I've never had two top 10 teams in Oregon and Washington. Never had two Heisman contending quarterbacks as Bo Nix and Michael Penix. And never had the stakes as high for the final time playing as Pac-12 conference members than ever, ever before. This is a perfect way to deal with the uh, our... our... 
sad Mariners season, as oh, it turns out, gosh, huh? Yeah. yeah. So tell us about the the standouts on this team. Uh, I guess Penix is is the big one, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's kind of you know last year I did I called this game for Fox and it was down in Eugene and it was a remarkable game that went down to the wire and Penix made some throws in the fourth quarter that took your breath away, like just throws that not many other quarterbacks, NFL or college, can make. He has that kind of talent, Dave. So it was a remarkable game, but I remember going into it, and Oregon's quarterback is a kid named Bo Nix, grew up in the outskirts of Alabama and went to the University of Auburn. Michael Penix grew up in Tampa. He went to the University of Indiana. And these two guys transfer in. It's like, yeah, do you know about the hatred and vitriol between the Ducks and the Dogs? They're like, uh, what? Like to the, <laughs> no idea. No idea. And they're like older guys too, right? They've been around the block. They both. This is Penix's sixth year of uh-huh. college. Bo Nix's fifth year of college. So last year they were newbies and newcomers. And for them, it was like it's just another game. Not this time around. This time around, they've had a year to hear about it. This time around, because of the stakes that I mentioned earlier, both know the magnitude and the meaning. And in the building. They'll walk out of the tunnel and they will feel it immediately. So this is a clash of titans, is what you're saying? It is. It is. This is is now Washington will play Utah. Washington will play USC. If Washington can win this one, there will be others that will follow that will be of the same ilk and magnitude as top 10 teams playing for playoff and, mm-hmm. and national title contention if they can win it. But so far, this is the biggest yet. Yeah. And Kalen DeBoer, the new head coach, undefeated at home last year, 16-2 and two in a year and a half as a Husky coach. This will be his biggest moment, too. Not had a game quite of this magnitude in his own building, and it's going to be a lot of fun. So this is Penix's fifth year, you said? Sixth. Sixth year? Sixth year. I- at the UW? No. Oh. <laughs> no, four in Indiana. Two in Seattle. It's Dave. It's a. This is a conversation for another day. Yeah, but <laughs> there's I'm, a I'm lot. Just, of, I'm just thinking. He's 24. About his, it's 20, almost 24 years of age. I'm just thinking his parents must be really upset that he can't get out of college in four years. <laughs> Are you I mean, kidding I me? Know, he's, he's got an undergrad. He's got a master's. He's going for his PhD. <laughs> he's going for his PhD now. Yeah. <laughs> Holy cow! How many PhDs can throw a ball like that? Not many. <laughs> oh man, you got a PhD? Right? <laughs> yeah, uh, working under and with you, a PhD in broadcast. You just have the PH. Us. There you go. I got the. P- all of high school. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> uh, Brock Hewitt. Thank you, Brock. You bet, Dave. All right. In the studio now, David Burbank, our producer. You mm-hmm. are a, a big Husky. You're a, yes. an alum. What, yes, how you I feeling? am an alum. Uh, nervous. As I, as I am every year for this matchup, I feel incredibly nervous. I've been to two different uh, UW-Oregon games, uh, both in on Montlake, uh, and both of them were losses. They were both bad. The first one I was uh, when I, while I was a student, I was in the student section, which is if if you've never been in the student section of any college game, but especially in Husky Stadium, it is raucous. It yeah. is one of the most fun places you can be. And uh, there was there was very little smiles or cheering oh. by the end of that game. And then the other year, I was not a student, and so I had to buy tickets. And uh, the cheapest tickets were still hundreds of dollars. Yeah. Uh, and they were in the visitor section, so I was <gasps> surrounded by Ducks oh, fans. No. It was it was a total nightmare. I think this year is going to be a lot better. Uh, Michael Penix Jr., as Brock said, is really really fantastic he uh, is a lot older than uh, most college quarterbacks would be but I think that works to his advantage it might not when he comes to the NFL which he likely will be drafted uh, this year but uh, for a college quarterback he has so much poise uh, great accuracy so I think it's going to be a great matchup I think uh, UW fans are going to be going ballistic it's college game day which is 
a really, really big deal. Uh, if you've never watched college sports, it's it's the biggest uh, production for yeah. any uh, for any college uh, date. And I think this is probably going to be their best matchup of the year on the show. So everyone's going to be really excited there on the campus. Uh, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a hectic scene. Down there. Uh, we live in the Montlake neighborhood, so I know that I'm going to hear it. Oh, I bet. <laughs> yeah, from yeah. Up don't north. try to do anything <laughs> no, during not, those hours. We're going to get to find out wild. which mascot head Lee Corso is going to put on. Yeah, too, yeah, yeah. right, <laughs> right, exactly. Are you going to have a chance? to go to the game? No, no, certainly not. I, uh... You'll be joining us by in front of the bloop tube. Then. Right. <laughs> yes, very much so, absolutely. All right, David, thank you much. It's time for your daily dose of kindness at 737. It's brought to you by Baird, focused on your financial needs since 1919. The Washington National Cathedral unveiling new stained glass windows with a theme of racial justice, replacing images that were a stain on our national history. CBS's Adriana Diaz with the story. The stained glass at the National Cathedral long upheld a stain on our history. This tribute to Confederate generals Robert E. Lee and Thomas Stonewall Jackson. They've now been replaced with protesters marching for equality. It is pretty brilliant, pretty bright. It's glowing. Carrie James Marshall's art can go for millions. For this, he charged $18.65, a nod to slavery's end. In a church, you're so used to looking up at the windows and seeing white skin. And seeing black skin here, it's almost like you have to do a double take. I don't think these windows exclude anybody. I think the activity and what they're engaged in is something that everybody can partake in. Below are words by poet Elizabeth Alexander, who performed at President Barack Obama's first inauguration. The final line of the poem, may this portal be where the light comes in, that can illuminate the beauty of the past and also sometimes the untruths of the past. I don't think I could have asked for anything more meaningful to have done as a kind of gift to the nation as a whole. Adriana Diaz, CBS News, Washington. Welcome back to Seattle's Morning News. From the GN Ursula Show, weekdays 9 a.m. to noon here on Cairo News Radio. G. Scott, yeah. you got to help us. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm obviously not a sports guy, so I, right. but I liked you. You are. So you're going to help us get ready for the Hawks game. Yes, outside. yes. Well, so we're talking about Cincinnati Bengals. That's where the Hawks are going to be. What are we going to expect for this game? Uh, the, uh, expect a dog fight. Yeah? Yeah, this is going to be tough. I'm a little nervous of this game. The Cincinnati Bengals are a... They're a team that you might think that aren't that they aren't that good because they have done the same thing every year the last three seasons. Joe Burrow, who happens to be their quarterback for the Cincinnati Bengals, his record in September is six, seven, and one. Mm. They don't do well in September. Mm-hmm. However, they've been to the AFC championship game two out of the last three mm-hmm. seasons, right? Same thing happened this season. Started off slow. Oh, my goodness. They're not great. Jamar Chase, who happens to be their star wide receiver, says, I'm always open. He was upset about not getting the ball. And so you think, "Uh uh-oh, everything is going to implode. And then last game, bam, he gets three touchdowns, 197 yards receiving. They're just back again. And it's just so familiar where they do that. So they're going to go out to a Cincinnati team that it's really hungry. If I'm being honest right now, I would say the Cincinnati Bengals and the Seattle Seahawks 
it is a 50-50 situation. I almost think that they're almost kind of like the same team when yeah. it comes to the expectations, yeah. right? There's an expectation that that, NFC, that um, the Cincinnati Bengals are going to make a real heavy run in the AFC, and there's an expectation that the Seattle Seahawks are going to make a heavy run in the NFC. So hold on. It's going to be an early game. It's going to be a 10 a.m. game. Get ready for this. Okay, so that means, because you're saying 50-50 evenly matched dogfight, that yes. means any little tiny thing on either side could sway the game. So let's talk injuries, mm-hmm. because it sounds like the QB you were talking about for Cincinnati, mm-hmm. Joe Burrow's been struggling with this kind calf. of lingering calf injury. Yeah. Where does that stand? Is he back to form? So, I mean, you know, it's, the calf thing is, is, is something. Like, he in week two, he had a little bit of a flare-up. So, what happened was is he didn't practice for like five weeks. But in that game last week, it looked like he's back. Yeah. You know what I mean? He looked good. He was running good. So, again, we're just going to have to see. To be fair, it was against the Arizona Cardinals, which is the their sa- defense is not necessarily top tier. Right? The same Arizona Cardinals that beat the Dallas Cowboys. One thing about the NFL, it's any given Sunday. And I'll say this. I'm glad you said what you said when you when you made the comment about any little thing. The Seahawks this season, if you guys have been watching, have been starting off slow. Mm-hmm. Right? That has been kind of their thing. And they kind of wake up a little bit in the second half. And they kind of do things. The Seahawks can't afford to do that in Cincinnati mm. this weekend. They're going to have to really jump out in front right away. What about their injuries? Where are we standing? How do they look? How's their health? I mean, it's the NFL, baby. It's week six, week seven. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Everybody right. ain't 100%. Right, yeah. There's some Band-Aids out there. Wait, 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 wait. As a matter of fact, how about me and you talk to each other? Hey, Travis, how's your injuries? Yeah, my, my back hurts. <laughs> yeah. I woke up this morning and my pinky toe was hurting. Yeah, right. What happened? Oh, no. Just old. Gee, I, I got I to ask about your face. Favorite yeah. Jackson Smith and Jigba. Is yeah. this going to be the game that he starts to break out and really has that that big game? Because he's been a little quiet mm-hmm. coming up. He's you know he's a rookie. He's getting into yeah. it, but he's he's got so much talent. I feel like this game might be the game. Right. I'll share with you what I shared with him last week at his house. He is a rookie, right? And we're talking about week six, week seven of his career. I think that Jackson Smith and Jigba is going to have a 10-plus year NFL career, right? So if I believe he's going to have a 10-plus year career, then this is the very beginning, Mm. and this is a small amount. So no, he hasn't had the production that a lot of the, quote, experts has thought he was going to have, but in the NFL, that's how it goes a little bit. Like sometimes it's all about your time. Right. It might be his time this game or it might be his time four games from now. At some point, you're going to get your time. Tyler Lockett started out slow yep. when he was here. Yeah. Right. Um, Jermaine Kerr started mm, out. Yeah. Slow, no. Good right? point. Yeah. Um, Gold. Golden Tate didn't even dress his first mm. game in the NFL. But I'll tell you what I told him. The Cincinnati Bengals have a thing. And what the thing is, is if you go back to 2011, there was this corner who got his first start, basically, against this team. And his name was Richard Sherman. Hmm. And it was against the Cincinnati <laughs> Bengals, and he got his first interception mm. during that time. Yeah. So, I think that this week, 
Jackson Smith and Jigba, I think he at least goes for at least 75 yards receiving in this game. All right. Calling it right now. Love it. All right, G. Scott, thank you, you much. We'll, we'll listen to you starting at 9 a.m. with the G. and Ursula Show. Welcome back to Seattle's Morning News. Cairo News Radio's Mickey Gomez is joining us now. So, Mickey, this is so interesting because you and I were having almost mm-hmm. parallel conversations this week with our kids, but kids of different ages. So my daughter came home from school. She's 10, and she was like, so there's another war? And I had to like sit down and explain you know, a conflict that basically has hundreds of years of history to my 10-year-old. And at the same time, you were having a tough conversation with your kids as well. Tell us what, what happened with you. I was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the conflict abroad continues, uh, you know, to present horrific images on social media this past week, and it's easily accessible online. And so we had to have the social media talk with our teens last night. And basically, I sat down with them and uh, asked, OK, do you know what's happening overseas? And my children said yes. And I said, OK, what exactly do you think is happening? And then my son explained his knowledge. My daughter said some kids at school were talking about it, but she's not exactly sure. And then Gigi said that she's already seeing horrific images on TikTok. And my son says that his ex account is flooded with images of destruction. Mm. And they both tell me that it's unavoidable for them. So that's when I went into mom mode and added more social media restrictions. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, kidshealth.org says, that we need to be having these conversations with our children, especially this weekend, and what the news is already describing. And um, I, I, I got to tell you, after the conversation with my kids, I went into my room and I cried a little bit. Because these images out there, I mean, we know they're horrific, even as grownups. They they yes. just, they break my heart. I mean, I, I, as a child with almost no context, context just like stumbling across this in your tiktok feed i mean how how do Mm -hmm. you prepare your kids for that i mean did you just say you got to stay off tiktok for the next 24 to 48 hours like i mean how do you prepare them for that well we're really good with uh navigating our for you page so we started uh googling cat videos dog videos yeah uh call it college college game day because i know that there's a big game tomorrow with the huskies and the oregon ducks and so we we really changed some of the analytics on her tiktok feed and then of course i said hey listen we're not going to be on our phones this weekend we're going to be watching college football and then sunday let's meditate uh and let's get outside even if it's raining let's go to the water let's walk the dog so yeah we're, we're trying to keep our kids off social media. Uh, Some of the experts do say, though, to listen to your children and to check in with them. You know, follow your child's lead. If your child isn't interested in talking about, you know, maybe what's happening abroad, don't push it because maybe they don't know. You know, Uh, they also say to answer questions honestly and briefly and to listen carefully. Uh, Last night, my son did say, I'm nervous. And I had to say, what are you nervous about? He's like, I don't know. But then I had to keep asking, what are you what are you nervous about in many different ways? I had to get inventive. And finally, he just said, I'm nervous that something's going to happen here. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's their fear. And it's our job to keep them safe. And it's hard Mm -hmm. to be like, well, you're seeing this horrificness happen uh, on your phone. But yet, as a parent, you say, but you're safe here. And then in the back of your mind, you're like, I hope well, I, and, right. and not to mention, you're, they're they're seeing this on their phone, and in in the case of you mentioned Mickey mm-hmm. X or formerly Twitter, not only are mm-hmm. they seeing images of violence, 
a lot of times that there's misinformation. Yeah. And, and so they're, what they're seeing might mm-hmm. not even be leading them to the right conclusions. And how do you explain that to them as well? It's so true, David. And what's interesting is that my son is all is on X. That's his that's his platform, which is so weird. He's like, oh, I was on I was on Twitter X and I saw and I'm like, why are you on there? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, let's get off of there. Uh, you know, another thing is that um, I, I did email a friend of mine who is a psychologist and uh, she said, don't be afraid to turn off social media. Mm-hmm. You're the parent. Mm-hmm. You're the one that that's guiding your your kids. So turn it off. And I just went, OK. Let's just let's just have a day of no social media. I think that's very smart. I also will say mm-hmm. that, like, I mean, don't assume your kids don't know about it just because they didn't bring it up to you. I mean, our six year old came home from school and he knew there was and he said a new war. Um, wow. And this this happened last year when he was in kindergarten. He came home and he was like, what's happening in Ukraine? And I was like, you are five. Like, you're, right. and I was How like, where exactly? This? I was like, are you hearing this from other kids at school? And he's like, there's a war. And obviously at five. Like, do you know what a war is, buddy? Like, so, I mean, like having to even have those conversations. And then this week, they they, both of our kids were like, and now there's another war and having to sit around the kitchen table and explain what amounts to thousands of years of conflict uh, to your six and 10 year old is tough, tough stuff. And, and, And I have to be more cognizant because when I grew up, I grew up during the Cold War, right? We didn't have instant access yes. to what was happening right. over there. We had to wait for the evening news. Same. My yep. kids know what's going on <laughs> yeah. right now in real time. And it's 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 quite, wow. So don't be afraid to have the conversation with your children. Don't be afraid to turn social media off and listen to them carefully, especially right now. Mickey Gomez, some really, really good advice for any parent, grandparent, or any adult with a child in your life. Thank you very much. You're very welcome, Travis. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss the show.